Thought Leadership from PwC. I think the preparer's voice is really important and and probably preparers, many preparers, um, don't appreciate how powerful they are at the moment. So number one is get involved. Hello. Today we're back talking ESG, this time with a look at the global landscape of sustainability regulations. This is PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. You don't have to have spent time in London to immediately recognize the iconic safety warning that plays in the city's underground transit system, reminding riders to mind the gap between the train and the platform. The imperative to mind the gap has become culturally significant as a metaphor that applies to many different situations, but one situation in particular will be the focus of our conversation today, and that's the gap between expectations and reality when it comes to the current state of sustainability reporting and assurance around the world. I've recently had the chance to meet with Julie Lord, PwC's Global Leader for Public Policy and Regulations, to discuss the current global regulatory landscape, in particular as it relates to the evolving sustainability reporting ecosystem. As our conversation will highlight, there are a number of areas within sustainability reporting, such as assurance, where there may be a mismatch between the expectations of investors, users, and the public at large, and the reality of what's happening. Jilly makes the case that an important priority for regulators and other ecosystem participants will be to align requirements and find common ground in the areas that matter most for reliable sustainability reporting. And this discussion's not just about assurance. There's many aspects to the ecosystem that require consideration, and we hit most of them. I think you'll find my conversation with Jilly insightful. And yes, Jilly is based in London, so the tube metaphor was definitely readily available. With that, here's our conversation. Jilly, welcome to the podcast. So nice to have you on. I'm so excited to be here with you. And in particular, talking about a topic I know we're both interested in, which would be sustainability-related regulation. Uh, But before we get into our actual topic today, I know it's always interesting to our listeners to hear a bit about your background. So can you sort of share your path to how you got here? I sure can. And Heather, it's lovely to be here. So thank you for the invitation. So I am an audit partner at PwC here in the UK, and I've been an auditor for an unfeasibly long time, 27 years. Um, And I'm also PwC's global leader for public policy and regulation. And in that role, um, I cover a whole heap of different regulatory and policy issues that we're tackling as a profession. But at the moment, sustainability in all of the associated areas around there is definitely the top of my list. And outside of work, actually, my most important job is that I am the mum of Poppy, who is a really wonderful teenage girl. Um, And I've also got two really badly behaved dogs. And they take up all of my time. Well, um, our regular listeners know that I am a mom of two teenagers. And so I definitely sympathize. And although some people would say a well-behaved teenage girl is an oxymoron, sounds like you have things wired. So that's excellent. So, And mine is as well. So 
no skill on my part. (laughs) I know they're raising themselves. So uh, so one of the topics that before we get into the regulatory discussion in particular, one of the topics that you've really spoken on that sets the stage for some of this is the expectations gap. And this is something that comes up and even I was in a discussion about artificial intelligence recently and expectations gap even came up in that context, definitely comes up in the context of sustainability. But when you're talking about that, what are they? What do they mean? And why are they important to sort of set the stage here? So that's a big question, and I'll I'll do my best um, to give it a good answer. So as auditors, we've talked about the expectation gap for 100 years. And usually what we mean by that is the difference between what we do and what we know and understand as auditors um, in terms of what our audit of financial statements does and what people outside, be they investors, be they politicians, media, the general public, what all of those people expect from the audit. And there's a gap between the two. So for many years, we've talked about that expectation gap. But as you said, Heather, we're actually seeing now new expectation gaps pop up in all sorts of different places. Um, And I think when I look at sustainability, I see these new gaps in, in a few different areas. So first of all, when I look at today's financial statements, so our US GAAP or IFRS financial statements, We've got an issue which has emerged there in that there are some investors and some NGOs and others who are desperately passionate about the climate emergency. And they're looking for information about what organizations are doing in respect of climate risk. And they're looking for that information in today's financial statements. And they're finding a little bit there, but they're not finding everything they want. And so they're unhappy. Um, They're unhappy with preparers of financial statements. And then as a consequence, they also criticize auditors. But the issue we've got there is that financial statements, today's financial statements, weren't designed to give all of that information about climate risk that they're looking for. So financial statements, as you know, um, are predominantly a historical account of performance and financial position. And when we think about a company's impact on the environment, a lot of that is future looking. We think about net zero targets. We think perhaps about how how a business model might be impacted by extreme weather events. It's all about the future. So we've got these folks who are looking for future-oriented information in a set of historical financial statements. And they can get a little bit of what they're looking for, but they can't get everything. Um, and that is causing frustration right now. So that's the first a new expectation gap that we're having to deal with. Moving on from that, when we think about, okay, well, what happens next? Um, Of course, as and you've talked about this a lot, we've got new reporting standards emerging. And so part of the way we solve that first problem is going to be through embracing new reporting, whether that comes from the SEC, whether it comes from the IWSB. In Europe, we've got CSRD. So these new reporting standards are coming in. And then I think about my world as an auditor and I think about what I may or may not do in respect to providing assurance over all of that new reporting. And the first thing I'd say is that many people in the outside world assume that a company's reporting 
whether it's financial reporting, whether it's new sustainability reporting, whether it's reporting on human rights and so on, they just assume that reporting is audited, full stop. When you're in our sort of little niche world, we know, oh, no, that's not right. The only thing that actually gets audited is the financial statements. But most people don't know that. So our first new expectation gap as we move into this new world is that most people are going to see the new reporting and say, oh, well, that must be audited. Um, there was a really good um, report, which I'd definitely recommend to anybody interested in this area that came out from IFAC earlier this year. And it's called The State of Play in Reporting and Assurance of Sustainability Information. It's not a very catchy title, but it's a great report. Um, and they've looked at 1,300 entities from around the world, 21 different countries. And they've looked at what reporting they're doing at the moment on sustainability and what assurance they get. So um, they start off by saying that of those 1,300 companies, 95% of them are doing some sustainability reporting, but only 64% get any kind of assurance. And then when they dig into that 64%, most of, in fact, the vast majority, 90% of those who are getting assurance only get something that's called limited assurance, not reasonable assurance. And maybe let me dig into that. It sounds a bit esoteric, but it's really important. When I do an audit of a financial statements, when I get my audit conclusions, I am giving reasonable assurance. So a financial statements audit is done to this level that we describe as reasonable assurance. And reasonable assurance is pretty high level of assurance. It doesn't tell, it doesn't promise that everything's perfect, but it's quite a high level of assurance. Limited assurance is a very, very, very different animal. Um, and so as a user, if you get a report that gives you limited assurance, you are getting an awful lot less than an audit standard reasonable assurance report. So let's go back to sustainability reporting. What I've just said or what IFAC tell us is that nearly everybody that's getting any assurance at the moment over their sustainability information is getting limited assurance. And actually, that is not very much assurance at all. However, if I think about the folks outside who are actually picking up those assurance reports, do I think they understand this gap that I've just described? Actually, I'm going to call it a gulf between <laughs> limited assurance and reasonable assurance. Absolutely not. That's a, you know, a technical nuance that I completely understand. But how would the person on the street get that? Um, and that is a real problem because they will see a report from PwC and think, oh, brilliant, that's been audited. Right. But it hasn't. It's a lot, lot lower level of assurance. And that is something in terms of a new expectation gap that I'm really, really worried about. Well, and I think it's interesting. I mean, I can work backwards. You had so many points there. But just on this expectation gap between limited and reasonable assurance, I think intuitively users of financial statements in the U.S. who use quarterly reports versus year-end reports actually are familiar with right. this because you have you know a limited assurance on those quarterly reports and then you know you have the reasonable assurance on the year-end reports but I, I agree with you I don't think people are thinking of that in this context and it is interesting um, we will include a link to your IFAC report we've talked about it a bit previously here on the podcast um, but we also saw in our own PwC investor survey 
that investors want reasonable yes. assurance and, and very specifically made that point. So there is the expectation gap that actually investors want filled that I think is interesting. But I want to actually rewind all the way to your very first gap when you were talking about the financial statements and the sort of gulf, I'll use gulf, your word, between what maybe um, all these different organizations are looking for about what companies are doing about sustainability and what's in the financial statements. And I do think to some extent over time, that gap will naturally narrow because as the impact of climate becomes more and more apparent, companies are going to make changes and it is going to be reflected in the financial statements. But I think the issue is that's not happening fast enough. And that's not even the purpose of those statements it's intended to show financial position in the context of all risks for the company, not just sustainability risk. And I think the point here is they're really focused in on that. I'm going to say narrow. It's not narrow, but the set of sustainability risks only. Is that a fair statement? I definitely agree with you. So if you look at financial statements, let's say over the last five years, you can definitely see a change. So five, eight years ago, you'd have picked up most sets of financial statements. Would you have read any mention of climate risk? Almost certainly not. Whereas nowadays, I'd say particularly in Europe, when you pick up a set of financial statements of a company that has got, you know, some um, carbon intensity, you will probably see some discussion there of climate risk. It may not be everything that some people are looking for, but it will be discussed. Um, so change is happening. And in fact, the IASB, the International Accounting Standards Setter, they've put climate risk on their agenda. So they're actually actively looking at how climate risk is dealt with in today's gap, at least in an IFRS sense. So, yes, I agree, change is happening um, and more information is appearing. We're also, I think, you know, we probably all feel this as citizens of the world. We're all learning every day a bit more about climate risk and what it means. But I still think that if we only look at today's financial statements and and if we hope that it's suddenly going to give us perfect information on the impact of climate risk, we're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole and we're going to be disappointed. Yeah, so then I think that naturally leads us to sustainability reporting. And we're recording this at a big week in the world of sustainability reporting because the ISSB did issue S1 and S2. So congratulations to them. I think it's a huge achievement, especially when you look at how quickly they got that done. But there's definitely more to, that needs to be done, and that's still not going to completely fill this expectations gap. So when you think about sustainability reporting and the expectations gap, what are some of the things that are really top of mind for you? So I think the first thing that I'd start with is that we nowadays, we all talk about sustainability reporting and that trips off the tongue, but sustainability is such a vast subject oftentimes we go straight to climate. But of course, there are so many other things to think about when we think about the really broad topic that is sustainability. Um, there are social issues, human capital issues, um, biodiversity now becoming increasingly important. Um, and so the first thing that I always caution myself to remember, and it's really important this week, as we've seen S1 and S2 come out, that that is a hugely important step. 
um, and we should all be thrilled. And there is so much more to do. So I think that's that's the um, first expectation gap that we need to keep working on. Um, the fact it's a huge subject and we need to do much, much more to, to uh, bridge information needs. I think the other element that I spend a lot of time thinking about and worrying about is that, of course, we've got many people playing in the sustainability reporting space. We've got the ISSB doing brilliant work. Um, we've also seen some great work come out of Europe, and I'm sure on the podcast you've looked before at CSRD and the emergence of the ESRS, mm -hmm. the European Sustainability Reporting Standards. We have, we think, we'll see a climate rule at some point um, come out of the SEC in the US. And then I could go on. India have got their own sustainability reporting standards same in Japan and so on. So we've got all of these people doing great work, but it's all a little bit different. And the danger, of course, is that we will see reporting emerge that looks the same. But actually, when you dig into it, the definitions under um, Indian sustainability reporting may not be the same as mm -hmm. those in the European standards compared to the international standards and so on and so on. And that is a recipe for real confusion. Um, and so we all need to keep very, very focused on achieving as much alignment and interoperability between those different regimes as we possibly can. So if you think about the financial reporting ecosystem and all the different players we have, and also think about the fact it took like 100 years to develop, but nonetheless, so we have auditors, we have preparers, we have the exchanges, the stock exchanges, regulators, standard setters, and that's starting to grow up in sustainability. But you make a point that in financial reporting, we've come down to sort of two. We have US GAAP and IFRS, and obviously a lot of countries have local GAAP, but most multinationals at least are reporting under one of those two um, primary gaps. What do you see is the key role of different players in the sustainability ecosystem to bring us to a place where we can start closing some of these gaps? So... To start with, I want to emphasize that word you've used, the ecosystem, because the really important thing is that everybody in the ecosystem has got to move and focus on this. What we're seeing at the moment is some people in the ecosystem being super active and others not so much at the moment. Um, so, for example, standard setters, as, as we've described, they're doing loads and loads of work, but... Because national regulators at the moment aren't yet as focused, as active, we're actually in a situation where this week I'm really excited that S1 and S2 have been published. But when you look at how many national regulators have promised that they're going to adopt ISSB in S1 and S2, it's actually a tiny number. There's some positive noises, but those who've actually signed mm -hmm. up very, very small. So we need everybody in the ecosystem to move. And in particular, there's a big call out from me to national regulators, national stock exchanges, markets regulators to engage with this issue, to work for alignment and to start thinking about, right, what am I going to adopt? Am I going to look at ISB and use their standards? So 
there's definitely a role for them. Investors, also a very important role. And what we see right now is that there's some investors, as I've already mentioned, who care passionately about this stuff and who are heavily engaged. But there's still a little bit of a sense as to, well, that's a, you know, a special topic rather than through the mainstream of all investors. Um, so I think it needs to become much more embedded in, you know, the minds of um, all investors rather than leaving it to the governance community or the ESG group and so on. Um, and again, I'd say that we need a stronger voice looking for alignment amongst reporting standards. But the ecosystem is the key. So let me ask a few follow-up questions on that. It's interesting. I was at the IFRS Foundation, had a conference this week in connection with the launch of the standards, and then they were also talking about the state of play with the um, accounting standards. But I was speaking to someone who came from an, an investor perspective, just another attendee at the conference, and they were very dismissive of sustainability reporting. And so uh, at the end of the day, it's all just you know, return on capital. And that's just a sideline, basically what you're just saying. And I have to admit, maybe it's because people I've spent time talking to, I was a little surprised to hear such a dismissive view. But it sounds like you, at least on some level, are hearing some of that too, because you said that it, it needs to become more of a central theme. And I'm just curious, what is sort of what are you seeing as you look at that landscape? And if you think there's something systemic that needs to happen, or if this is just something that needs to evolve? Well, I, I definitely think there's e evolution needed and is happening. And I see people um, in the investor world, maybe in one of three categories. There's those who absolutely care about it, um, hugely think about it all the time. And then there's maybe like the person you met, there's people who will wave their hands and say, you know, I'm really not interested in it. I'm focused on return of return on capital yes. or, you know, whatever yeah. the financial metric is. So move on. But then I actually think that most people are in a middle category. Um, and the middle category knows these things are important, but at the moment, none of us have got a perfect answer to explain, well, how does sustainability performance actually correlate with return on capital, with enterprise value? We've got a sense that it's probably connected, but we can't build a perfect valuation model at the moment to make that connection. So I think most people are in that middle um, ground of feeling unsure about how to deal with it because we're definitely moving into a new world of valuation um, but not quite sure how to tackle with it and that's where the evolution is happening mm -hmm. I think more people will move into the space of yes this is really important I want to know all about it um, but people are still working out how well, and I guess there's another important player in the ecosystem we didn't mention, which is academics, because that is one of the things that I think where they can bring a perspective. I also think, though, you raised a, a good point that you see all of these individual countries acting. And I hate to bring up COVID because I know people don't want to talk about it. But one of the things that we talked about a lot on the podcast during sort of the 2020 timeframe was the fact that it was an opportunity to come together globally but actually, for the most part, we all turned inward and faced nationally. This feels like another opportunity to come together globally, but to a big extent, 
we are each country looking sort of at what we each need. And so if you had an opportunity to sort of plea to regulators that this is a place where you can't just focus locally, what what's your pitch? Great question. Um, and I totally put her on the spot, by the way, audience. <laughs> she did not know. I don't have it. this in my notes, and it feels like a really important moment as well. Um, so... So I think I would start by going right back to the basic problem that we're trying to tackle, which is the climate emergency. And I think most people would say that um, working together is surely going to be more effective at that very fundamental level. Um, And then if I think about, okay, well, how do we work together we need common information um, and information that if I look at something in the UK and you look at something in the US and our colleague looks at something in um, Botswana, that we all ha- are looking at something that's comparable. We're speaking the same language. Um, and so far, I don't think anybody would argue with that. Mm-hmm. But then when we translate that into reality, it means that we need the same reporting language. We need the same reporting standards. And actually, in my world of assurance, we also need the same assurance standards. So a user needs to know that if she picks up a piece of information from the US and she thinks it's been assured, that that means the same, whether she's looking at the information in the US, South Africa, or anywhere in the world. So reporting and assurance standards will help us all speak the same language. And that ultimately will help us tackle the climate emergency better. Well, and actually, I could not have come up with the answer, but I agree with you. And I think you raised an interesting point, because if you think about what's spurring climate action, the Paris Accord, it is a global agreement. We saw in Montreal last year, the agreement, the 30 by 30, um, you know, biodiversity. And so those are global. And to measure global progress, then I think you need these types of global standards. So let me come back to your point on auditing and the auditing standards, because we we started with this idea of assurance. And let's assume we find this perfect reporting world where everyone's reporting the same thing. But that doesn't mean investors will be able to rely on it without this assurance and There's also a gap in terms of assurance standards and otherwise. So what do we see happening there? Because that is something we do not, we have not spent a lot of time talking about here on the podcast in terms of where are we with auditing standards and, and what would that also mean from a company perspective? Yeah. So this is so important at the moment and it sounds niche, but I would love everybody to just, you know, spend five minutes thinking about it because I think it's critical. So where are we in terms of assurance standards? Um, And the answer is there are a few different moving parts. So um, we need to get ready for this new world of sustainability reporting. And there is going to be demand for assurance there. So step one, how are we going to give that assurance? Because if I take off the shelf today's auditing standards, which tell me how to audit financial statements, They don't work that well if I just try and apply them directly to non-financial reporting. So we have the IAASB, the International Audit and Assurance Standards Board, who are tackling this space. So they are developing an entirely new assurance standard. It's going to be called ISSA 5000, IASA 5000. And that is going to tell people 
how to give assurance over sustainability reporting. And we're expecting to see an exposure draft of that standard this summer. So they've worked on it really quickly and we'll see it very soon. One of the very important things about that standard is it's designed to be used by audit firms like PwC. But really importantly, it's also designed to be used by firms who aren't audit firms, people who might be engineering consultants, but actually think, I would like to play in the sustainability assurance space. The reason that is so important is that plenty of those people are currently giving assurance over bits and pieces of sustainability information. But right now, we are all doing it in a different way. I'm doing it from my background of being a financial statements auditor. Engineering consultants are doing it from the background of being deep engineering specialists. Climate boutique consultants are doing it from their background. So everybody is approaching this differently at the moment, using different standards, sometimes using no standards and just doing what they think is a sensible piece of work. When I think about the today's users of those reports, it is a minefield. They are picking up things that look the same, but they're not the same. The work effort below those things could be completely different. So we all need as assurance providers to move to a common standard. I think the work the IAASB is doing, the ISA 5000, is the key here. And I would love everybody around the world to embrace that and say it's very important for the public interest that we all tackle this in the same way, that an assurance report is underpinned by the same work effort. And I'd love everybody to embrace that standard. Um, It remains to be seen whether people will, because again, I come back to national regulators. Um, At the moment, we're really relying on goodwill and that people will think will decide it's the right thing to do and there's a big ecosystem role for national regulators to say actually yeah we can see the point here and we will mandate that that standard gets used so julie let me ask you a question because i think one of the things that we as independent accountants think sets us apart is independence, system of quality control, over, you know, regulatory oversight, particularly in the U.S. We have the PCOB and otherwise. So if all these other service providers move then to this ISO 5000, does that incorporate those same types of requirements or will there still be a gap there? So that's Partly why I think this would be a good answer is that the idea would be that if you adopt ISO 5000, you would also adopt the ethical standards, the quality management standards that come with it. Um, And your point on independence is a really good way of illustrating this. So in the world of financial statements audit, which is now relatively mature, When we talk about independence, we absolutely know what that means. And in fact, there's quite, I can see you nodding, (laughs) there's quite a detailed, technical, stringent definition of to be an independent financial statements auditor, here are all of the things that you and your firm have to achieve. And it's hard, but it means that you can describe yourself as independent. That's a very high standard. um, And that's important to the users of our reports. Right now in sustainability assurance, there are people who are describing themselves as independent assurance providers, 
but they use independent in a very different way and Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean the same. I talked before about the level of work needing to be the same, but the foundational stuff is is actually as important Mm -hmm. in terms of really building public trust in the work that we do. Well, and Julie, I guess it's almost as though we were talking earlier about reporting standards and that's trying to get everyone speaking the same language, right? But then this is also everyone needing to speak the same language. So it's not like you're picking up one report and it's in the equivalent of English and another one is in the equivalent of you know French. But instead, they're all saying the same thing and using words the same way. And again, I don't think that's something people are as focused on, probably because most preparers are just trying to get get themselves over the line. Let me move. I know we talked about some other expectation gaps. And I at least want to hit those. So this is another big one we've spent time talking about is this in sustainability reporting. I'll use the word nicely greenwashing. Um, I think there's also, you know, we saw that in our um, global survey, 87% of investors thought that there were unsupported claims. Now, That seems like a nice way of saying fraud, but I will let you say what you think about that and how, again, we could address that type of gap. Right. So that 87% is a remarkable statistic. So 87%. Well, and I'm just going to pause this. Can you imagine if investors thought 87% of financial reports had unsupported claims? And the the financial system would not operate. Right. Surely people would be literally jumping up and down and saying, this is a, you know, a crisis moment. Yes, exactly. Um, and actually, you know, when we look forward, we should feel the same about sustainability mm-hmm. reporting. So this is something we've absolutely got to tackle. Um, so, so they're saying um, that they believe that there is some unsupported claims in many examples of sustainability reporting. Is that the same as fraud? Um, I think you could have a long semantic debate about whether an unsupported claim is fraud. Um, but the point that I come back to is that investors need decision useful investor grade information. And they expect that from financial reporting. And they absolutely do have the right to expect the same quality of information from sustainability reporting. So whether or not you actually think it's fraud we've got to tackle it. One of the things that I find interesting here, and I think there is a gap to be dealt with, is that in the world of financial reporting and in an accountant's world, if you are an accountant, wherever you are in the world, pretty much, you get held to a standard of ethics. So when we qualify as accountants, and and you get admitted to be a CPA in the US or a CA Mm -hmm. in the UK and so on, There are certain ethical standards that you sign up to. And that means that if you um, move into the business world and you become a CFO, when you're preparing your financial statements, there's an ethical code that you've got to apply. Um, And and that's super important. Mm -hmm. In the world of sustainability reporting, we don't necessarily have accountants, chartered accountants or CPAs preparing sustainability reports. Um, we've got a much more diverse range of people, and that's that's a good thing. However, because we've got that much more diverse range of people, 
If they're not CPAs, they won't have necessarily that ethical code and there is a gap there. So we need to move into a world where if you are preparing public reporting for a company, whether it's financial reporting, whether it's sustainability reporting, um, whether it's any kind of public reporting that investors and others are going to rely on, that there is a code of ethics that you will apply Mm -hmm. so that if you've got to make difficult judgments about what's right, what's wrong, what could be greenwashing, what's full and complete reporting, that you've got a basic code of principles that you will go back to and say, this is how I'm going to, this is what's going to help me decide what the right thing to do here. And that's not currently in place. um, And I genuinely think it should be. And who, this may seem like an ignorant question, but who would be the ones to put that in place or whose decision is that? It's absolutely not an ignorant question. (laughs) I think that's actually a really tough question. So in the accountants world, the people that own that code of ethics right now are called IESBA, the International Ethics Standards Board for Accountants. Um, So they set that ethical code and we all subscribe to it around the world. Um, And I guess the real answer to your question is that at the moment, outside of accountants, there isn't an equivalent body. So what are our choices? We either say to IESBA, you've done a great job for accountants. Can you actually extend what you Mm -hmm. do a little bit and see whether you can write a code that any preparer of public reporting might adopt? That would be one route. They might feel that they don't particularly have locus to do that, but they'd be well-placed to move into that space. Um, I, though, think that we also need to turn to markets regulators. Mm -hmm. So if markets are going to move based on sustainability reporting, then the markets regulators, the SEC, the FCA or the Mm -hmm. UKLA in my country and so on around the world, they are the ones that really should care about this. And so they, and perhaps with IOSCO, who mm-hmm. are their international body, um, I think they could do something that's really powerful in this space. Wow, definitely a lot to, th- I mean, so much to think about. And I have one more gap <laughs> to ask you about. We're creating right up quite a long list of things that need to be done. But so then we talked about some of this, and it's the assurance reports and misaligned expectations. And so we talked about limited assurance versus reasonable assurance. And I think there's a big gap there that you need to explain the difference. But ultimately, we also need to close that gap and get to this level of reasonable assurance. So what what's that laundry list look like? And, and what types of things should people be thinking about there? And actually, as a company, why does this matter to me? Like, I might even be a step ahead if I'm getting any assurance from what, you know, from where we started this conversation. You're right. So what the IFAC survey tells us is that not everybody is currently getting any assurance. Um, And so step one is to think about what assurance you might need, what your users expect and so on. So why would a company um, need to care about whether it's getting any assurance? And I think the answer to that is in this statistic we talked about, the 87% of investors who fear that sustainability reporting might include some unsupported claims. That That is not a sustainable situation. And there's, I think, a very small step between that 87% of investors 
um, saying what they're saying at the moment. And the next thing they'll say is, right, we're so worried about it. We need assurance to build trust in the information. So that's why I think it's important for companies. But companies have got a journey to go on in terms of reflecting on how they're going to get themselves to a position where they get reasonable assurance over all of their sustainability reporting. Um, And the steps on the journey probably start with limited assurance. I'm not a great fan of limited assurance. I think it's not very well understood. But I can see that as a stepping stone, it might be helpful. I think the absolutely key when assurance providers are giving limited assurance and when companies are commissioning it is to be super clear that this is limited assurance. Um, you know, ideally, I'd like there to be flashing lights on limited <laughs> assurance reports. Neon colors. Yes, which make it unmissable. The other thing which I think is a really interesting point for reporters to think about is what of their sustainability information is going to be assured. Um, and when we look at practice right now, there are, I think it's 64% of reporters today get some of their sustainability information assured. But that could mean, quite literally, that could mean one metric. Or it could mean the whole of their sustainability report. And obviously, that is a massive, massive difference. When we get to our ideal world, um, that might be an optimistic statement, (laughs) but I'm sure we'll get there in the end. Um, We need to be in a place where the whole of a sustainability report is assured, just in the same way that when we look at a set of financial statements... The whole thing is covered by the audit opinion. It's not just this number or just that number. It's the whole thing. So the end game has got to be you get your whole sustainability report assured. But again, being realistic about the journey, I guess what organizations will need to work through is where are they going to start? Which set of metrics are the most important to get assured in year one? And how does that move over time? Um, and again, clarity is going to be really important. I think I, I, I would have another neon light moment, um, making it super clear what's been assured and what's not. So the last thing that I'd say in this space, which I think is super important and we have to be very realistic about, in the early years of reasonable assurance, audit level assurance over sustainability reporting, I think we will see qualifications. As a financial statements auditor, you know, that that idea fills me with horror because happily, for the most part, you don't see many qualified opinions of um, financial statements um, of big listed companies. But I think we will see qualifications in the sustainability reporting world. And the reason I think that is that companies have had tens, in some cases, hundreds of years to develop really mature systems and controls to um, develop, to to produce financial statements. In the sustainability reporting world, they've had a fraction of that. Um, You know, even the most advanced companies have probably really only been working on this for max 10 years. Oftentimes, it's much, much shorter than that. So the systems aren't mature. The data quality isn't brilliant. They're having to rely on data that comes from outside the the company's reporting boundaries from down the value chain, and it is going to be imperfect. So the other thing that I think we've got to prepare for as assurance providers, as users, as regulators, 
and as reporters is the fact we'll see qualifications. Um, and we need to get ready for that so that we don't freak out when it happens, but that we know that that is part of the journey. So, Jilly, to that point, obviously, if I'm reporting under CSRD and I'm required to get limited assurance, then you know, you're going to have to deal with this or if the SEC rule comes out or again, depending what happens with the um, ISSB standards. But if I'm voluntarily reporting then and I know there's imperfections, why wouldn't I just then wait kind of so I, and not start the assurance journey um, instead of dealing with a limited report or qualified, sorry, a qualified report? So I think you build more trust through um, facing into it and being clear about the quality of the information you're reporting. So, um, and maybe here we'll go back to the ethics point that we were talking about earlier. If, you know, you think you're doing your level best to put out good information, but it isn't perfect, much better to be clear on that. And part of that clarity might be by saying, well, I've got some assurance on this and there are some qualifications because it's not yet perfect. Um, to me, that is much more trustworthy mm-hmm. behavior than putting the information out, kind of closing your eyes and hoping for the best (laughs) and thinking, well, in a few years, this will have all have improved and hopefully nothing will go wrong in the meantime. Um, I'd be much more comfortable in the first situation. I think there's a challenge there for users. Um, If companies are going to show the maturity to behave in that way, then I think as users, and we'll all be users, we need to respond to that with maturity as well and say, okay, we recognize this is new and that everybody's doing their best, but it's not yet perfect. And so if, if we have those imperfections shown, we will respond to that maturely um, and not hysterically. So if you can wave a magic wand and sort of fix the state of all of this reporting, what are sort of the top few things that you you would pick out here? And maybe a harder question, how much progress do you think we're going to make over, let's say, the next few years? I really wish I had that magic wand. <laughs> um, and I'll indulge myself for a moment in um, in imagining what I do. So I think I would I'd do at least three things. So number one, and this is something we've actually not talked about so far, um, going back to the ecosystem, I'd start with preparers and I would want all preparers to follow the same um, governance and control standards for sustainability reporting so that before you even start worrying about what assurance you're going to get Mm -hmm. and what it's going to say, that all preparers are held to the same expectations as you need appropriate governance and you need rigorous controls and people step forward and take that responsibility. So that would be the first thing I'd do. And I'd love that to be consistent everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. I'd then move to reporting standards and I'd wave my magic wand and I would magically create um, a single set of sustainability reporting standards that all national regulators said, yeah, we love those standards and we're going to adopt them in our country. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yes, that truly would. For for everyone in the ecosystem, honestly, preparers and users and auditors. Yeah. And regulators for that matter. Absolutely. (laughs) And stock Everybody would benefit. (laughs) Yes. 
so I'd do that. And then with the third swipe of my magic wand, I would look at assurance. I'd have everybody embrace the same assurance standard. All assurance providers, whether they're audit firms, whether they're not audit firms, um, and all that goes with it, the ethical standards, the quality management standards. So we're all working to the same basis. Um, And I'd have that enforced everywhere as well. Wow. Well, that would definitely be a huge step forward and and sounds much like the financial reporting ecosystem where we started. So if you, maybe final question for you, if you're a preparer that's been listening, what would you do now in terms of not so much for your own reporting, but is there actions they could take to try to influence the direction of any of these? Or is this something preparers just need to sort of wait and see? Absolutely not. And in fact, I think the preparer's voice is really important and and probably preparers, many preparers um, don't appreciate how powerful they are at the moment. So there's huge debates going on in the standard setting and in the regulatory community about everything we've touched on today. And the preparer's voice is often absent. Um, So number one is get involved. Um, There are various consultations ongoing. You can talk to your local regulators, um, your stock exchanges, market authorities about what they're thinking about adopting and why. And as I said, I think as preparers, you're in an incredibly powerful position because you are the people who will be doing this stuff. And there's not many who are actively involved in the debate. So respond to consultations, talk to your regulators, talk to your markets authorities, and also talk to your investors as well about what information they are looking for. How much do they trust it? Are they one of the 87% who think there are unsupported claims? And if so, are they in your reporting? Um, So all of those things I think you can be very proactive on and definitely worth doing. All right. Well, Julie, definitely a lot to think about. It'll be interesting. I almost feel like we should book next year now to see where, where things stand, but really appreciate all the insight. Thanks for joining me. Such a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.